Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Dispatch, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust. This is Sheila Mulliken. I'm here with Joseph Fricke, and today we are talking about the McGavicks. We've introduced you to two of the families that we talk about here on a regular basis, and now we are back with a third edition to uh, introduce you to the family that built uh, and inhabited Carnton here. Appropriate to be sitting in their house. To in talk their about house, them, in right? their attic. And this yeah. also follows up uh, the Boff Films YouTube video with Eric and Braxy having produced it, the, the McGavick's video that's just mm-hmm. out now. So if you want more information about that, you want to check out that YouTube video, you can see that link in the description for this episode. It'll be there. And uh, I think they even threw us a bone, too, and talked about the podcast yeah. at the end. So that's good. But uh, now let's dive into the McGavicks because this is this is a complex family. They're, we talked about the Shares family. They're kind of feisty. Then you've mm-hmm. got the Carters just kind of making their way. And then there's the McGavicks, this kind of ostensibly very wealthy, very prominent family in town here in Middle Tennessee. And now here they are here at Carnton as well. And they're well-connected politically. Uh, Randall McGavick, who builds this house, born in Virginia in 1768, he's a first-generation American, goes to school in Pennsylvania at Dickinson College, where one of his classmates, actually, he's a member of a literary society with Roger B. Taney, who will eventually become Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, author the majority opinion in the Dred Scott decision. When he finishes school, he moves out west with his brother David, and at that point, Nashville's really the frontier, and he even writes a letter home to his brother James at one point in 1805, uh, noting that Nashville's finally coming along. It says it's become a place of considerable consequence. We have play actors. We have profile cutters, those like silhouette artists, and even others sailing through the air in balloons. So he, they're here on the cutting edge. They're buying up a lot of land, which they'll eventually sell at a profit. But he eventually inherits some land here in Williamson County, has a number of enslaved people working for a while to mm-hmm. clear that land. They build a house here in 1815. That's just a little summer house. It takes them almost 20 years to clear that to land, To clear the too. land. So. And that's something that when we're in the house and we're talking about Randall when they get here, it's really hard to wrap your head around mm-hmm. the eastern flank battlefield park mm-hmm. being a dense wood line and, and wooden lot. Right. All those trees having to be chopped down and then derooted out of the ground. Mm-hmm. And only then do you get to clear the to land start and start building. to farm yeah. house. Right, because we have areas at the back of the property today that are treed, but that's nothing compared to what they were dealing mm-hmm. with because these are young trees that have only grown up in the last few years, and they're dealing with old-growth forest. I a lot of times like to point out to folks that trough that's in the smokehouse because that's mm-hmm. made of a log that's been hollowed out and that begins to give you a, a feel for the kinds of trees that they're having to cut just to clear the land mm-hmm. and that's just step one mm-hmm. there's still going to be cellars to dig to dig out and bricks to make and so mm-hmm. it's quite an arduous process to build a house back then and they get their family down here and they're living in the house that would have been directly adjacent to the Carnton, the home that we think of today that house built 1815, simple construction, downstairs a kitchen, sort of a family room, and then upstairs we've got some bedrooms up there, but mm-hmm. that house is really just sort of a shadow, and quite literally there's the shadow of the house on this construction built mm-hmm. in 1826. Mm-hmm. So that's just one phase, and then of course then there comes this house that comes in as well. Mm-hmm. They finished that in the early 1830s, moved their family out here to stay. This becomes their primary residence at that point. Randall mostly gives up politics at that point, becomes a full-time mm-hmm. farmer, not growing cotton or tobacco here, though. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike both the chairs and the carters, he never attempts cotton.
lot, and this is just livestock. It's a mm-hmm. big livestock farm, but Massive that's livestock primarily farm. what they're doing here. Um, they grow uh, their family here, and then when Randall dies in 1843, he leaves 22 enslaved people to Sarah, his wife, but he leaves the farm to his younger son, John. He also leaves acreage to the older son, James, but James already has a house. He doesn't need the, doesn't need the house, so that goes to John, who's a bachelor. Mm-hmm. So. And then by 1847, travels down to Louisiana, 1848, gets married to Caroline Elizabeth Winder, and we start to call her Carrie McGavick. And so then there's going to be a lot of changes that come in after that point. The porches will be added. Things will change around the house, and then they'll start their own family as well. They have uh, five children together. The oldest, Martha, dies in 1862. She has scarlet fever, we believe, from the uh, letters that are being written mm-hmm. by Elizabeth, John's sister. It's, that's what it sounds like. Hattie and Winder apparently had it too. They recover. Um, Mary Elizabeth was born with a heart condition. She dies at seven. And the third child is a little boy, John Randall, and he Mm -hmm. only survives about three months. So it's actually the two youngest children that Mm -hmm. survive all the way to adulthood, Hattie and Winder, and they're the ones that are here when the war comes here. Mm -hmm. And then back in 1860, John, showing just how politically connected and how prominent this family is, John is actually selected as a delegate to attend the Democratic National Convention, Charleston, South Carolina gets down there, sits through three days, 55 roll call votes, mm-hmm. and he watches the Democratic Party dissolve right in front of him. This is a man that was, his father raised him in the Democratic Party's politics. I mean, his father was a contemporary of Andrew Jackson. James uh, uh, John was- Had worked uh, for James K. Polk yeah, he, was he was governor. Exactly, right? a staff member for Polk. And so these are two guys that are the figureheads of the Democratic Party in his lifetime. Mm-hmm. And now he's watching the party that he knew totally pull itself apart in 1860. The Southern Democrats attempting to nominate the kind of fire eater, very pro-slavery. Uh, John C. Breckinridge, sitting mm-hmm. vice president. And then Stephen Douglas, of course, the Northern Democrat, the compromise candidate. Neither side ever makes an agreement. And then naturally both of them will run for president. But we think about the big picture, but what about John McGavick? Mm-hmm. What was he thinking about all that? Because yeah. the Tennessee delegation was voting primarily for Stephen Douglas. They Correct. seemed to be leaning towards Stephen Douglas. And when the election rolls around, uh, we as a state are not going to vote for either of those men. We're actually going to vote for John Bell, who's a third-party candidate. They're kind of It's kind of a compromise party, mm-hmm. the Constitutional Union Party, pro-slavery, anti-secession, trying to find a middle way. Mm-hmm. So Tennessee likes them, as does Kentucky, which is probably embarrassing for John Breckinridge <laughs> and Virginia. But of course, that's not where the that's not where the election is going to go. Mm-hmm. New York, Pennsylvania, and Ohio, the battleground states, and Lincoln wins the election in '60. And then by December of 1860, South Carolina is seceding from the Union. And this is a family again, politically connected, prominent. Their world is swirling around them. There are 44 enslaved men, women, and children here by 1860. Mm-hmm. And now the nation's pulling itself apart over the institutional slavery, over its expansion further west. And then Tennessee, as her sister states are seceding from the Union, then comes February, Tennessee hangs on. But John McGavick votes against secession. Mm-hmm. Not an outspoken Unionist, but certainly somebody that was born and bred on Jacksonian Democratic principles. He could be a mm-hmm. Southerner, he could be a slaveholder. He just had to believe that the Union was perpetual. Yeah. And so he's going to, Tennessee, of course, votes against secession in February, but 
in June, we're going to have a second referendum. And at that point, we decide to leave. And John has to make a decision. John, at this point, is still young enough to fight. I mean, he's in his early 40s, and certainly there are men who are early to mid. I mean, Nat Shares is 41 or 42 yeah, when he goes so off to John's war. Yeah, so John's only about three or four years older than him. It's certainly, he would have had, he would have been an officer. He would have been made an mm-hmm. officer immediately. So he has to make a decision about that, and he doesn't fight. And we can't, I mean, we don't know exactly what that means, but we know that he, he made that choice. He and Carrie, of course, are providing some humanitarian aid they're fundraising and helping supply medical equipment Mm -hmm. but they're not he doesn't fight and then in 1862 uh, he writes a letter to john c breckenridge of course the letter i think is actually here in the carton collection Mm -hmm. or tennessee archives but um a letter essentially proposing to move his 44 slaves under a military guard further south Mm -hmm. to aid in some capacity to the confederate war effort and because this time, by this time, Tennessee's under military occupation, mm-hmm. and all slaves have to do is get to the United States Army, mm-hmm. and they in can Nashville. be free in uh, Nashville. It's only 20 miles. Right, so. and eventually that'll be Franklin, not yet. That's not until 1863, but he knows that his property is now in jeopardy, mm-hmm. and so he decides to insulate that a little bit by moving him south. And... Throughout that period, there's so many changes that are happening here. You mentioned it, that Franklin will be occupied by the spring of 63. And in that time, John McGavick no longer has 44 slaves here. Mm-hmm. And so he engages then in a rental policy, essentially renting slaves from, from in town people, right? and, and other his neighbors and his friends, bringing the slaves here to do the work here at Carnton. And then at the end of the day, they go back to the place where they are enslaved. And there's John and Carrie and their family. And then here, by November of 64, of course, Hood's army is making their way up from Atlanta, the Tennessee campaign taking place just to the south of us, Columbia, then Spring Hill. And then all of a sudden, November the 30th of 1864, there are two armies that have made their way to the collision course right here at Franklin. The Confederate army will form up right behind the house. There's some 3,500 soldiers in William Loring's division that will form up just to the south of us, just where, where we're sitting right now. And then the house is taken over as a Confederate Army's field hospital the day of the battle. And it's not, it's not, hi, how are you? How's your day? Can we use your house as a field hospital? It's very much a, it's this a matter is of going fact to transaction, happen. Yeah. There will be a fight. We will need this place as a hospital. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think in that moment that John and Carrie don't really have much of a choice in that. It, it is, you said it's, it's a matter of fact that it will happen. Right. I think where they do have a choice is their, their level of involvement. I mm-hmm. mean, a room, we believe, was set aside in the house for the family. And so they, they could have chosen to insulate themselves and their children. And honestly, as a mom, I'm not sure that that's not the choice I would have made, is just to get those kids away from the horrific sights and sounds that are about to fill this house. But that's not what they choose to do. Mm-hmm. They choose to be involved. They are... They can't obviously perform surgeries, but they are providing humanitarian aid to these men. And even just the presence of the children is a healing presence. Some mm-hmm. of these guys haven't been around their own children in a long time, and some of them make note of the fact that that little seven-year-old boy is bringing water to them. And mm-hmm. so that's where they do have a choice, and mm-hmm. the choice they make is to help. And Carrie sort of finds herself in later years to be the center of attention but it, it's important to remember that the entire family mm-hmm. was involved in it it's not just the the stories about carrie mcgavick being called mama it's the fact that john mcgavick was helping surgeons move men from room to room mm-hmm. that the children were watching as the house that they grew up in 
the home that they played in, the home where their family lived, is being ripped apart and is being soaked in the blood of young men that are pouring into this house. Mm-hmm. That changes anybody. Right. Well, and I think, too, about the fact that it's the house they're going to keep playing in. I mm-hmm. mean, in, they have to in, live in, here. After. Yeah. Yeah. In a few months when all of those men are finally gone and you've scrubbed as much of the blood out as you can and you probably put new carpet down over the blood. They know it's there and they play in those rooms anyway. I mean, they're mm-hmm. going to grow up here. And then Hattie actually ends up building a house here on the farm. Eventually, mm-hmm. she and George live here for a while. So it's not like they're trying to get as far away from it as they can. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And so the battle comes to an end. 30th, Hood's army makes their way to Nashville, then defeated. The wounded will stay here well past the war's end. April 65, the war comes to an end, but then the last wounded soldiers don't leave here until almost June of 1865. Mm -hmm. And so this house is still sort of standing as one of the largest Confederate field hospitals from the battle. And then by 65, finally the last soldier goes home. And this family has to pick up the pieces. We're entering into the post-war years. We're entering into Reconstruction. And this is a family that was on top of the world in 1860 and 61. And then slavery's demise is brought by the American Civil War. The 13th Amendment will be passed within the course of the following year. And their lives are changing. The world that they lived in doesn't exist anymore. Right. So now they're signing labor contracts. We know of at least one enslaved woman who had lived here before the war that's going to work here afterwards, Frankie. She's married a man named Miles McConico, and they stay on here and work. Miles has what is basically a sharecropping agreement with, with John. He's provided a certain amount of acreage, seed and tools, and then he they share the yield. And, but Frankie's going to work here in the house. She works in the garden, and she's paid a certain wage. So the McGavicks are having to figure out what this new world looks like. How do you contract laborers? Do you provide housing for them? What What is a proper amount of pay for a person who is working for you if you don't own that person? And then not only that, they, they still have the scars of the battle right. inside and around the house. The town's landscape is ripped apart by it. And then on November the 30th of 1864, the, it was a very much matter-of-fact thing that this would happen to them. And then throughout the spring of 1866, something else starts to happen. The town has put together this committee. John McGavick is a member of the committee, donates two acres of his land to serve as a private cemetery for the Confederates. And so where the family might not have had a choice in 1864, they very much had a choice in 1866 to do something, I think, permanent. Mm-hmm. And it's... It's something that I, I don't know that a lot of people would willingly just say, here's two acres of my farm and you can use it however you need. But over a, a span of about three and a half to four months, there's a team of four men and they'll reinter the remains of 1,481 Confederate soldiers killed here at the battle. And it will be here at Carnton, right? Just to the north of the house. And John and Carrie McGavick become the caretakers of that cemetery for the rest of their lives. And this is... We, we talk about it, and sometimes on a tour we just say, oh, they were the caretaker of the cemetery, John, until 1883, Carrie, John, 1905. In those years, they're not just, like, clipping the grass and making sure that the cemetery looks nice. They're answering letters of families who have no idea what happened to their husbands, to their brothers, to their sons. They're, they just don't know. And John and Carrie can answer that through the notebook that George Cuppet leaves for them, and that's... That's a really trying task, and that's a, a, an incredible, I think, responsibility. 
for them. Right, and then a great many of those families end up coming to visit because obviously Mm -hmm. they want to see the place where that person they loved has been interred, and John and Carrie walk out there with them. I Mm -hmm. mean, they stand in that grief with them. It's not just that they you know, stand on the porch and point, mm-hmm. I mean, they're helping them to find the grave and that that becomes an important part of their life's work mm-hmm. going forward. I mean, they still have responsibilities in the community too. We see Carrie being part of church committees and helping to do various different activities in the town. So they're, they're very plugged into other things mm-hmm. too, but this becomes a work that is unique to them mm-hmm. nobody else can quite do this and they, they open up their house to these families too that's what mm-hmm. that was one thing i was really struck by in the in the video that that they had done on this was that they included the letter from the capel family mm-hmm. and at the very end of the letter john mcgavick says you know should you find your way here we'll host you at yeah the i'll house. expect you to stay here right yeah and, and we'll the, give you whatever assistance we can yeah. we'll open up they're opening their doors again mm-hmm. to this and it's you know I don't know how much of it is the fact that they had lost three children already, and so they were very familiar with loss anyhow. Maybe they knew how to provide that comfort to these families. I I don't know. That's a lot of speculation, I'm sure. But I think that their, I don't know, guiding hand after the war is, is what brings closure to a lot of these families, what helps them figure out that their son's not coming back, their husband never is going to come back. Their their father will never be back, right. and they're here, and so that's an incredible weight for them to shoulder. And, and again, we said it: they'll care for the cemetery, they'll have that responsibility, John, until 1893, when he passes away, and then the house and the cemetery and everything goes to Carrie. She stays here till 1905, and she passes away, and they leave then the house to Winder. Mm-hmm. Winder was seven years old the day of the fight. And in 1907, he's what, about 49, 49 years old, yeah. and he has a heart attack and dies. And then the cemetery book goes to George Cowan, Hattie's husband, and from that point forward, his wife stays here a number of years, and then the house sold out of the family, and then we have Hattie to talk about. So George and Hattie raise a big old house full of kids, and um, interestingly, Mariah... Reddick, who had been Carrie's personal servant, she was given to her as a wedding present, came to live here at Carton as a teenager, sent south during the war, and is actually working for the Howells, who are the parents of Verena Davis, wife of Jefferson Davis. But when the war is over, she does come back to Franklin. She apprentices with a local doctor, becomes a nurse, and one of the things she does as a nurse is to deliver babies, including some of Hattie's children, and we believe she actually works as a nurse for Hattie for a while, looks after those kids, and she doesn't get married till 29, which back in the 1800s would have been probably considered a little late, except there had been a tragic war, and so obviously it's probably not uncommon that a lot of young women are waiting till later in life at that point to marry, but they raise their kids at least for a while here on the farm. They eventually move back into downtown Franklin, mm-hmm. and Carrie's actually living with them toward the end of her life. When she dies in her obituary, it mentions that she's living with, with Hattie at the time mm-hmm. um, in downtown Franklin. But they continue to live in this area, send their kids to school at Vanderbilt eventually, and we have some photos of those dorm rooms, which is kind of fun. But. Uh, in 1899, Hattie, as a member of the UDC, will unveil the Confederate monument in town. And that is a monument that both her and Mariah Reddick will see in their everyday life for the rest mm-hmm. of their lives. And then 
These are two women that live incredibly long, long lives. Mariah passing away in 1922 at 90 years old, and then Hattie at 76 in 1932. And what I think is really interesting about that is that, and I, we, we, I've talked about this on tours, and I think you and I have had this very same conversation, is that this is a family that sees so much mm-hmm. in terms of from the very beginning of the country. And then think about when Hattie dies, 1932, the first year that Franklin Delano Roosevelt will begin to serve first of four terms as the president of the United States. Right. And the in, president that brings us into World War II. Right. Right? Well, and in three generations, yeah, we've spanned all the way from Randall, who's growing up in Virginia while the revolution is going on. Right. And we've gone all the way through the Civil War, which comes right here to home. And now you're, you're right. We're right on the brink of World War II. There are airplanes and railroads mm-hmm. and movies. And, I mean, life has changed drastically. Hattie and Mariah will both have the right to vote before their lives are over, which mm-hmm. is a tremendous accomplishment. All, all of those changes, and yet Carnton stays yeah. very much the so, same, yeah. very much unchanged from from that day. So we hope that you've learned a little bit more about the McGavick family. We hope that you've uh, maybe inspired to come take a tour at Carton, learn even more about this family, learn more about the enslaved here, and learn about the role that the house and that the family plays in the day of the Battle of Franklin. And of course, if you wanted to check out the YouTube video, that always helps as well. The downloads that we get there, the ads that you suffer through help us to continue restoration efforts at all three homes. So certainly go and check out the YouTube video and the link for that will be in the description of this episode as well. As usual, we like to point you towards some resources if you want to learn more. Uh, An interesting thing about the McGavicks, we've talked about this a lot, they didn't write very much about themselves. Most everything that we know we've gotten from census records, newspaper articles, letters here and there. But there have been a couple of books that have been written about the family, about the home and its role in the war, and they are fiction. So Mm -hmm. we want to just right out the gate remind you that they are fictional works. Mm -hmm. But if you want to spend a little more time with these families, you might enjoy reading The Widow of the South, a book written by Robert Hicks a number of years ago. It's a New York Times bestseller. Mm -hmm. It's a novel, and lots of people have come to visit Carnton because they enjoyed reading that book. And then there's a local author by the name of Tamara Alexander, and she has written several books located here as well. Christmas at Carnton is a small little novella that's written uh, about a fundraiser that happens here, and we certainly know that Carrie was actively involved in doing fundraising, so that's kind of an interesting read. With this pledge is about Elizabeth Clouston, the governess here, and she married the very last soldier to leave here, Roland Jones, and this is their story. And uh, Tamara had a lot of information to work with, so this is a fun story to read because an awful lot of it's true. And then the most recent installment is a book called Colors of Truth, which covers a period after the war. But if you want to just spend a little more time with these families, bear in mind that it's fiction, but these are some fun books to read. And you can pick those up in our bookstores as well as online. And this episode will air, uh, we're, we're recording it now in the second week of July. This will record and be posted out there next week from the time that we record it. This episode is also going to pair with the one that comes at the end of this month, which is actually going to be on the McGavick Confederate Cemetery. And when you brought up uh, Robert Hicks's Widow of the South, the only thing I could think of is how many times I've been out there on an extended tour talking about the soldiers, and somebody that's read the book is asking, where's Zachariah Cashwell's grave? And it's like, I'm, I'm really sorry to tell you he doesn't exist. He's not a real person. Uh, but, but it's a good story. Out. It's a great story. So check those out. Enjoy them. Come here. Learn about the family. 
watch the YouTube video, listen to the next few episodes of The Dispatch because we'll be talking more about this family, more about their role after the war. And then actually an episode on Widow of the South with Eric. So that'll be a a good way to kind of wrap up this whole story. So uh, thank you again for listening to The Dispatch. Any final thoughts, Sheila? I believe that's it. Alrighty, we want to thank you all for listening today and for sticking with us, downloading this episode. Be sure to like and subscribe and leave us a review. Let us know what you think. And as always, we will see you on the battlefields.